I'm really delighted to be introducing The Woman and the Wolf, the inspiration of Red Riding Hood. And it comes at a, a very timely moment when Red Riding Hood is about to be released. I read April the 7th, but it might be sooner. Uh, that's Catherine Hardwick's Red Riding Hood. When I was watching the trailer, there seemed to be so much, oh, what big eyes you have <coughs> acting, and this kind of bestial longing. And Hardwick did direct Twilight before. But... Uh, Today, we're going to find out all about the medieval origins and the twistings and the longings and the lustfulness of Little Red Riding Hood before we go to the cinema and see the twilighted version. What I'll do is I'll introduce each of our speakers and they will talk and then afterwards we'll take questions from you. So first of all, Dr Kimberly Pierce, and she's talking about Girl Meets Beast, The Power of the Pelt. Kim has recently completed her PhD at the Centre for Comparative Literature and Cultural Studies at Monash University. Her thesis is entitled Girl Meets Beast, The Beast and the Cultural Forest of Female Sexuality, The Mythic Cycle, Process of Curtailment and Power of the Pelt. And what an impressive thesis it was. <laughs> she continues her curiosity with this mythic cycle and the contested sexual aspects of the fairy tale. Yasmina Sinesis is working on The Girly Werewolf. Yasmina is a practicing artist, curator, arts writer, and lecturer in printmaking at RMIT University, where she completed her master's in fine art printmaking. And she's currently undertaking a PhD. Her ongoing Girly Wolf project has been exhibited nationally throughout Australia and has toured to Lithuania. She's given papers on female werewolves at international conferences in Budapest, Philadelphia and the UK. Yasmina is best known for her particularly elaborate reduction lino cuts, which have been acquired by many major Australian collections. And I've got here, for the record, Yasmina is not a werewolf. <laughs> so it's good to know. Uh, to, to round off the session, we have uh, Professor Barbara Creed. And Barbara's talking about the eroticism of being devoured. Barb is a professor of film and media at Melbourne Uni, and she's been drawn to fairy tales since childhood, particularly the darker side of these stories. Two of her books explore these themes in film, The Monstrous Feminine, Film, Feminism and Psychoanalysis, and Phallic Panic, Film, Horror and the Primal Uncanny. And I have to say that just about every conference I've been to in Australia and internationally over the last 10 years, without exaggeration, Barbara's name is always mentioned. <laughs> and I think it's, it's testament to the influence of your body of work on psychoanalysis and film. So it's great to have you in the flesh today. So, first of all, we'll start with Kim. Um, thank you for coming along, everyone. Um, I am labouring under a little bit of a cold at the moment, so I hope you can understand me. Um, my presentation is called Girl Meets Beast, Power of the Pelt, as you can see here. Um, I think we're all familiar with the story about the little girl with the red hood who's sent out into the woods by her mother to bring granny some bread. She's given instruction not to stray from the path, but of course she comes across a wolf who encourages her to delay, um, resulting in the scene of cross-dressing, bed-hopping and violent death. 
This is one fairy tale that hasn't been given the Disney treatment, although I'm sure many of us in the room will be happy to see Catherine Hardwick's um, feature next month. The fact that Little Red Riding Hood hasn't been Disneyized is perfectly understandable. Um, it's just a bit too sexy to be set to the usual musical arrangements. But it does mean the archetypal characters shift in our minds, elements of the action transform and cultural meanings behind them mutate. This is perhaps why I find this story the most interesting and vital fairy tale, because its features are in constant flux. The fact is Little Red Riding Hood is intimately bound up with notions about sexuality and its curtailment, with the young female bodies a highly contested side of morality, and Little Red Riding Hood does come from a fairy tale tradition, Disney notwithstanding. Charles Perrault's Le Petit Chaperon, Chaperon Rouge is the original fairy tale as opposed to folk tale. It was written in 1697 during the reign of the Sun King Louis XIV um, and Perrault was something of a literati amusement at court. His redux of peasant stories painted with the sexual innuendo so enjoyed in the galleries of Versailles was considered the height of sophistication. In touching up and toning down broader folk elements, Perrault introduced the Red Hood and romanticised the peasant girl's life. She is a pretty little creature who forgets her responsibilities when the wily old wolf suggests she enjoys the flowers in the forest. The crux of Perrault's sexual parable plays out when the grandmother wolf invites the girl to join him in bed and she accepts. No sooner does the girl utter, Grandmama, what, what great teeth you've got, than she's eaten by the wolf without reprieve. This final punishment is followed by Perrault's jaunty sexual morality poem, which advises young, growing Mrs Fair to avoid the sweet-tongued wolves who flirt with them. Perrault enjoys a faux-naive wink-nudge here. He reflects the sexual play and bed-hopping of the Versailles courtiers, while sharply criticising the sexual independence and, uh, of the educated women at court, as well as broader French society. In the late 18th and early 19th century, the Brothers Grimm had a much more earnest ambition. In the aftermath of the Napoleonic occupation of Germany, Jakob and Willem Grimm sought to revive the national tradition through the natural poetry, the geist of the fairy tale. But as Marina Warner notes, they were often irritated by their informants quoting the Perot version rather than the authentic stories of the simple folk. Jacob and Willem Grimm's version was in this way developed from Perot, but coined some of the more enduring aspects of the myth we know today. But their high ideals did not uh, preclude them from augmenting the folktales with their own moralising, nor, it seems, obtaining the stories from the educated middle classes, such as their sister's sewing circle. The Grimm's had to produce a saleable product to support themselves, their father having died during their childhood. In their version called Rot Caption, the mother's admonition is accentuated, including the famous phrase, don't stray from the path. While the sexual element is evident when the wolf asks, what's that tucked under your apron? There are more, uh, other more biblical connotations, such as the wolf in sheep's clothing. The story therefore required a saviour, and so the Grimm's created the huntsman a paternal protector who cuts open the belly of the wolf, um, allowing girl and grandmother to jump uh, forth unharmed 
and rock caption to learn a valuable lesson. The combination of these two stories represents the official fairy tale rendering of the myth. Um, both are sown with morals about sexual propriety and spiritual temptation aimed at young girls. The consequence of defiance is death, or at best, being eaten and then resurrected. However, by reflecting on one of the many more faithfully recorded oral tales, we can see that the good versus evil opposition is simplistic. There are a great many Little Red Riding Hood stories from different locales in Europe and further afield, sharing narrative and symbolic elements, um, with only regional colour to distinguish them. The list includes The False Grandmother from Italy, Lompopo from China, and the Latin story written in 1023 called Fecunderatus, which translates as In the Company of Wolves. I'm sure many who are into Angela Cartel will know that phrase. Um, in the oral version called The Story of the Grandmother, which is collected around 1885 in rural France and then later researched and adapted by folklorist Paul Delarue in his 1951 study. The girl meets the shadow in her wolf. The wolf is not evil per se, but wild and hungry, and the girl flirts with danger and the possibility of erotic pleasure. She performs a kind of strip tease, but recognises the mortal danger before it's too late, and using her own now slips away from the wolf's grasp. Here the girl is sent out without caution, and when she meets the werewolf, who's disguised in human form, she elects to take the most responsible path of needles rather than pins. The grandmother is dispatched quickly by the wolf, who places her blood and meat in the cupboard. When the girl arrives, he suggests that she eat it, recalling both the rite of communion and the cannibal taboo. She is then invited to undress and lay down with the wolf. The girl asks, where should I put my apron? Repeating the question for each garment, which the wolf replies, throw it on the fire, my child, you won't be needing it again. As is familiar, the girl ex exclaims at the hairiness, nails, shoulders, ears and nose of the wolf, but at the usual cue to devour, oh granny, what a big mouth you have, um, all the better to eat you with, the girl realises something's amiss. She, she makes an excuse to pee and tricks the wolf into letting her outside, slipping the knot and escaping home safely. So this story is the story of the death of the grandmother, who must give up her place once the girls reach maturity. It speaks of an adolescent on the eve of initiation who must use her instincts to survive. This trial is one of escape, reconciliation, sacrifice and the acquisition of self-knowledge. Uh, self this is one of a number of other endings that seem startling to those familiar with the official tale. Um, I've, I've just put up on the slide here the alternative final act to Little Red Riding Hood story from Maria Tatar's um, anthology of the Brothers Grimm. Um, the scene goes after the widely known performances of the devouring of the girl and granny and the fall of the huntsman's restorative acts. Tata notes that the contrast between the two endings, with the first emphasising the lesson that Little Red Riding Hood herself has learned, and the second, this one, um, suggesting a confident heroine who has discovered how to outsmart those who attempt to prey on her. In this other, other ending, as well as the story of the grandmother, there's a striking importance placed on the matrilineal line. 
but the collapse of grandmother and wolf seems to locate knowledge in the realm of the wily beast or the other. Even in well-known fairy tale versions, there's a slippage between Granny and Wolf. In Tata's unearthed ending, she is age and knowledge and connected with nature. Um, grandmother resides in the forest. She knows the ways of the wolf and how to conquer it. She is a female lycanthrope whose identity collapses so completely into the wolves that her own flesh and blood cannot distinguish between the two. Most importantly, it is maternal knowledge that feeds the girl and, as the wolf, also threatens to feed on her. In this sense, grandmother reflects the duality of Carl Jung's mother archetype that both nourishes and devours. Jung writes, The qualities associated with the mother archetype are maternal solicitude and sympathy, the magic authority of the female, the wisdom and spiritual exaltation that transcends reason, any helpful instinct or impulse, all that's benign, all that cherishes and sustains, that fosters growth and fertility. The place of magic transformation and rebirth, together with the underworld and its inhabitants, are presided over by the mother. On the negative side, the mother archetype may connote anything secret, hidden, dark, the abyss, the world of the dead, anything that devours, seduces and poisons, that is terrifying and inescapable like fate. (coughs) In this Jungian sense, the grandmother stands in as a same-sex projection of the shadow and so concurs with the reconciliation with the animal other. The woman animal is powerful, wise and strong. There's a matrix of meaning and moral dualities that operate to bring the child into womanhood. There's, and yet, reflecting on the Grimm and Perot versions, the girl is offered little in the way of self-realisation beyond learning obedience to male authority figures. Um, to a significant degree, this restorative feminist work is done in the continually, continual recycling of the Little Red Riding Hood myth. In contemporary culture, Little Red may be the sex kitten called into service to sell lipstick, um, but might equally be the marauding beast murdering male oppressors. Each new redux adds to the constellation of meanings that are no longer bound to the socio-cultural concerns of an erudite 17th century French courtier or some brothers from the 18th century Germany with some fairly serious daddy issues. Um, Official fairy tales have been replaced by countless revisions in print, television, advertisement, the internet, film and art, each with their own idiosyncratic uh, interactions with the fairy tale. The weight of their numbers defies an official text as new versions are constantly created, acquiring new media, new meanings and new morals. This proliferation recalls the process of the oral myth in that it is shaped and reshaped by being told millions of times. With the benefit of a contemporary polemic on gender and sexuality, many of these texts are disruptive of the fairy tale, redressing past repressions and rendering up aspects of female autonomy. The blurring of the ideological line between good and evil and the inversion of archetypes occurs in various ways. Some neo-mythic texts seek to recover the role of the beast from evil sinner. Get your hands off that endangered species, yells a woodsman to Red Riding Hood in a version circulating the internet. Others recognise the potential for erotic pleasure associated with the beast. 
This figure, which stands outside paternal, social and moral governance, unleashes previously repressed bodily desires in the girl. The beast may still represent danger, but to the moral fabric that represses the girl's animal urges. Here, Warner elaborates on the attraction to the beast. Her need of him may be reprehensible, a moral flaw, a part of her carnal and materialist nature, or it can represent her understanding of love, her redemption. He no longer stands outside her the threat of male sexuality in bodily form, or of male authority with its fearful amorality and social legitimacy. But he holds up a mirror to the force of her nature within, which he is invited to accept and allow to grow. This spectrum of meanings assigned to girl and beast has been constellated in many ways in high and low cultural texts. In Angela Carter's heroine in her short story, The Company of Wolves, who, it seems, has fallen into the murderous clutches of the werewolf, triumphantly and joyfully joins the pack with her new mate. Dennis Danvers' werewolf novel, um, Wilderness, plays with elements of Little Red Riding Hood, um, notions of humanity and animality, archetypal beast feminine projections and the monstrous feminine in Barb's vernacular. (laughs) Director Matthew Bright's Freeway from 96 reflects on the mobile, resilient, kick-ass Little Red, um, Vanessa, played by Reese Witherspoon, who prevails over over the wolf Bob Wolverton, played by Keith Sutherland, and the patriarchal, social and legal structures that collude with him. In Ginger Snaps from 2000, um, Ginger, played by Catherine Isabel, becomes the girly werewolf as she begins to menstruate. The narrative making comic use of the correlation between the strange changes of sexual maturity and lycanthropy. Here, the beast is a sign of authentic, fully realised sexuality, which women must learn to accept if they are to become normal adult heterosexuals. The beast may represent an empowering psychological symbol and... Tapping the power of the animal no longer seems charged with danger, let alone evil, but rather a necessary part of healing. In many of these contemporary texts, it becomes the natural conclusion that the girl becomes the beast. Rather than reconciling with an externalised masculine sexual other, the beast is integrated into the girl's psyche and physicality, producing a confluence of autonomy and eroticism. Whilst this assimilation might seem uh, psychologically healthy, for for dominant patriarchal culture it raises uncomfortable notions, bringing us into the sphere of vagina dentata. The were-girl manifestation as essentially hairy most clearly signifies the connection between animality and sexuality. Warner writes, hairiness indicates animal nature. It is a distinctive sign of the wilderness and its inhabitants and bears the freight of Judeo-Christian ambivalence about the place of instinct and nature, fertility and sexuality. The world girl embodies pubis, the genital pelt. She's reached sexual maturity, left her father's house and shows a readiness to engage with sex. As vagina incarnate, the girl beast is perhaps a gentler version of vagina dentata, an inversion of the lower teeth for the slathering upper jaws of the beast. Nature, primitivism and sexuality are entwined notions which breed within them primal fantasies of birth, seduction and castration. And this is bound up in the mysterious, partly concealed female genitals, 
the postcoital passivity of the spent male body. Death is re- uh, frequently a metaphor for orgasm. The birth canal as a site of creation and associated with death as a return to the source. But the girl's bestial corporality can symbolise not the rejection of sexuality, but a condition of it. So in contemporary reworkings, vagina dentata can be an empowering rather than... It can be empowering rather than marginalising. Um, Mitchell Lichtenstein's coming-of-age horror comedy Teeth um, brings vagina dentata to life. The protagonist, Dawn, played by Jess Wexler, is an enthusiastic youth leader at her local chastity club called The The Promise. The film begins in the front yard of the newly blended family home when toddler Dawn and her stepbrother, the young Brad, are sitting in a kiddie pool. Brad proposes a game of I'll show you mine if you um, show me yours. And uh, his exploration leads to a bitten finger. Dawn seems oblivious, but Brad has learnt a frightening lesson which will manifest itself in misogyny, in misogyny later in life. Um, his fear and loathing of vaginas means he will only ever engage in anal sex with his girlfriend. The film ironically exploits the unjustified masculine fear of vagina dentata. Brad, played by John Hensley, probes Dawn's mouth before sex, as pictured here. Um, exposing her teeth and making manifest that any man who receives fellatio is so vulnerable. If vagina dentata eats anything, it is the phallus as a site of masculine power. Dawn has a number of vile experiences with men which end up in castration for the guilty party, delightfully for the female audience, I think. Um, There's a scene of attempted date rape by fellow promise keeper Toby, This is followed by an appointment with a creepy, molesting gynaecologist who loses his fingers. (laughs) Then the falsely caring Ryan manages to pass unscathed through Dawn's teeth before revealing a cruel bet, which results in her jaws slamming shut. Dawn gradually reconciles with her lower other, which begins to work to her advantage, as Stephanie Bunbury writes. Dawn is more like a comic strip hero who discovers a secret power and, after a period of denial, learns to harness it for good. In traditional stories of vagina dentata, Lichtenstein says, all the woman needs is the right person to come along and take her, somehow brave the the fangs, to bring her into anatomical line. Here the narrative is flipped, so it's not about the hero who conquers the girl, but the girl conquering the bad guys. Dawn becomes an avenger. When her, mother's, uh, when her mother dies as a result of Brad's neglect, she turns her secret power against him. She's repelled his past sexual advances, but this time she puts on her war paint, the blue eyeshadow and lipstick, and an alluring dress. When she induces him to have vaginal rather than anal sex, she intentionally snaps her jaws shut on his member. Brad's punishment is the most excessive. As his penis drops to the floor, his own dog breaks from a cage and eats it. (laughs) In um, director David Slade's Hard Candy from 2005, the girl is 14-year-old Hayley, played by Ellen Page. 
replete here with Red Hooded Jacket, um, who meets her well-mannered beast, Jeff, played by Patrick Wilson, as Lensmaster 319 in the perilous forest of an internet chat room. After three weeks chatting online, she's apparently left the path and consents to meet him at a diner sinisterly named Nighthawks. Jeff lures Haley to his house and uses his occupation as a photographer as a pretense for her, her to model for him, um, progressively undressing while drinking screwdrivers. The wolf uses his subtle charms to ingratiate himself with his prey, lures her away from prying eyes, establishes a playful, romantic relationship while plotting violence and abuse. Pedophilia seems to run parallel to the incorporative annihilation when the wolf eats the girl. We become increasingly uneasy as events unfold towards the concluding act that will obliterate the girl's physical and psychological innocence. But at this point, the narrative suddenly shifts pace, perverting the naturalised script and circumnambulating the story's possible themes. The screwdriver Haley's early prepared for Jeff was apparently drugged and he falls unconscious. When he wakes, Jeff is tied to a chair and the erstwhile unsexed innocent transforms into a shrieking vagina dentata who psychologically and physically tortures the beast she's rendered helpless. Despite his protestations of innocence, Haley uh, seeks hard evidence of Jeff's past crimes to exact revenge for a friend who was one of his earlier victims. This is a deviation from the innocent who stands as a cautionary figure, culpable for her own destruction, transforming Little Red Riding Hood into an empowered avenger without the need for a woodcutter rescuer. She exposes his lies, unlocks his treasure box of mementos and finally threatens him with a slowly extracted castration. Whilst both Jeff and the audience believe Haley's made the final cut, the performance has actually been a charade to terrorise him. The film exposes in Sharon Marcus's terms the social script of sexual violence through Haley's combativeness rather than passiveness of destabilising the roles assigned to the subject and object of sexual violence. She writes, each act can perform the rape script or explode it. By defining rape as a scripted performance, we enable a gap between script and actress which can allow us to rewrite the script perhaps refusing to take it seriously and treating it as a farce, perhaps by resisting the physical passivity which, direct, which it directs us to adopt. Ultimately, we must eradicate this social script. In the meantime, we can locally interfere with it by realising that men elaborate masculine power in relation to imagined feminine powerlessness. Since we are solicited to help create this power, we can act to destroy it. In this sense, Haley explodes the inscribed feminine powerlessness acting as her own woodcutter, preventing her own rape and the rape of future victims. When Haley presents Jeff with a choice, he either hang himself or surely expose him as a pedophile. The horror of being unmasked, of exposing his perversions to the world, is more terrifying than death itself. The film's poster and tagline, Strangers Should Never Talk to Little Girls, thus signifies the Little Red Riding Hood, who is... <clears throat> not to be trapped herself, but is rather the bait that will entice and engulf the beast. Um, in Anna Duss's novel Inhuman, um, we're introduced to the transforming, transforming wolf girl residing in a rural Tasmanian community called 
the Oatlands. Dust's writing style oscillates between a phonetic teen dialect and poetic prose. Her striking artwork elaborates the metamorphic process of her protagonist, Sally Hunter, um, which she undergoes, like many contemporary girl beasts, at the onset of menstruation. Sally exists in a kind of fugue state in both the emotional hysteria of adolescence and her animalistic hallucinations and hunger for blood. Um, At first, Sally relishes the freedom of her transformation. Um, She transforms, eats a cat and raids a neighbour's chicken pen in her first experimentation with her new body all the beginnings of a powerful force that courses through her, threatening to unseat her human consciousness. Sally tells us, I'm a vile creature, and for a moment the emptiness is filled and I feel elation. I buzz so my body is no longer my body, it's electricity. I'm aware of it, of, all I'm aware of is the fluid inside, the fluid around. I have exploded into the universe, become some cosmic force. Dusk is at her most lyrical when she describes Sally's euphoric incremental transformation. Like other little reds, it is a violent, cruel male that first feels the force of her newfound power. uh, Belvin uh, Calvert is her first um, human kill, the leader of a group of thugs who taunt and bully Sally, calling her bitch, dog, mole, fucking slag. After Bevan tells Sally, I want to stick my cock in your fucking mole. She decides to send a note accepting his offer, luring him down to the lake. She plays along, kissing Bevan, and when he tries to force her to fellate him, she transforms, drinking his blood and licking him clean, categorising each of his bodily sense. Bevan's friend Nigel then falls from a tree where he has witnessed the bloody scene and Wolf Sally dispatches him to, this time, eating her victim whole. Dusk makes much of the abject and taboo. Bodily fluids, piss, shit, blood. Um, She has Sally birth a huge chopped liver menstrual clot, inferring that her victims are working their way through her body. The community speculates on the fate of the victims, blaming monster others such as lesbian vampires, shapeshifters and and the vengeful ghost of the extinct Tasmanian tiger. When another of the thuggish boys turns up dead left on his mother's back step. Sally begins to realise there are others, her rival Coralie amongst them. As Sally slips deeper into her instinctual animal state, only small slights are reason for her killing. Old busybody Vera Bradley, Jane Harris, who Sally suspects, realises her lycanthropy, drunken party-goers Brett and Dean, who she and Coralie engage in sex play with. Setting her up, Coralie bites off Sally's finger and leaves it at the scene of the crime, to attract the attention of police. Coralie's continu- continual ambivalence, her goading of Sally, um, seemed aimed at drawing her out. After this incident, they enjoy a rampage in a, hen- in the hen's, ha- in a hen's house, which is represented in the third um, part of this triptych, in which their passionate kiss threatens to turn into a savage bite. Sally seems content when she visits Hobart and meets Andrew the sailor from Sydney. He promises her passage from Tasmania, but also when she invites him to love her and become wolf with her, he accepts. She returns home to Oatlands once more to find her brother, like her father, has committed suicide. After the funeral and... Yeah, okay, sure. Um, 
Uh, what can I miss here? <laughs> um, maybe I'll just wind it up to the conclusion, yeah. In this paper, I've reflected on the somewhat patriarchal origins of the Little Red Riding Hood fairy tale, but also the various ways that contemporary culture has realised the power of the pelt. Where the protagonist is both girl and beast, female sexuality is not just characterised as tainted, but natural sexual appetites are also celebrated. There are other endings where a confident heroine has discovered how to outsmart those who attempt to prey on her. And I've looked at scenarios in which a flight into the wilderness is not only escaped from an inferior subject position, but a road to self-awareness. The complexities of the sacred, monstrous, animal feminine are fluid and tidal within these myths where girl meets beast. In them we find the locus behind these texts that valorise feminine autonomy, wisdom, sexuality and the power of the pelt. Thank you. So for at least a decade now, I've been uh, obsessed with female werewolves, I think it's pretty fair to say, uh, which has formed the basis of my printmaking practice. And in 2005, I started my PhD project, which is the Girly Werewolf Hall of Fame. Hopefully I can show a picture soon. <laughs> no? You point it this way. Point it that way. Anyway, what I'm doing in this project, hopefully I'll be able to show you some pictures of it, um, is identifying various women from throughout history, so both real and fictional, who may qualify as female werewolves and uh, selecting some of them to be imagined as portraits. Uh, and there have been a lot more female werewolves than most people imagine. I know the males are the famous ones, but there are plenty of women out there too. And I think... Um, and I think that demonstrates that women have uh, played a much bigger influence in the shaping of the werewolf myth than they're generally given credit for. Can we... <laughs> Please. Get some images. Uh, so what I'm trying to do by drawing attention to these overlooked histories of the female werewolf is to challenge the, the idea of the male-gendered celebrity of the werewolf. And uh, so what I'll be talking about, and hopefully looking at today... Uh, some of the visual representations of she-wolves, which <laughs> be hard to see from here, as a, a broader context for my own printmaking practice. So while they were uh, considered a medieval phenomenon, the werewolves didn't really hit their stride, so to speak, until the 16th and 17th centuries and were actually deemed a heretical belief, if not a foolish superstition, in the Middle Ages. Uh, however, there were some earlier trials from the French-Swiss border which recorded a related phenomenon, which was riding on wolves. So Elsie, here is a real woman, was tried for diabolic invocation, causing hailstorms and getting about on a big grey dog. So apparently both she and her wolf were burnt at the stake too. So while wolf riding was not in itself uh, considered witchcraft per se, it did suggest questionable morality and a tendency towards diabolical activities, particularly given the association between the wolf and the devil. And the wolf riding was also a particularly feminine crime. It was only women who were accused of it. So once werewolfism opened up uh, or gained ecclesiastical recognition, as a, uh, as a heresy, uh, it opened up the way for executions and persecutions of werewolves as, as heretic witches. And it also meant that now the prosecution could use torture in order to gain a confession. So that the 
implements and the various things you see in the landscape are kind of like standard torture, tools of trade, if you like. So one of the key shifts in theological thinking that saw werewolfism officially recognised by the church was this notion of diabolism or the deliberate worship of and surrender to the devil and his will as opposed to getting the devil to do your work for you, which was considered like the male sorcery domain. So learned authorities of the day argued that women, being the supposedly weaker sex and not just physically but also intellectually and morally, were more susceptible to demonic suggestion, including, and I'm quoting here, the ludicrous humiliation of imagining themselves transferred into the carcasses and entrails of the baser animals. And uh, as you see here, there are 300 of them running amok in a single day. Okay, and here you can clearly see that it, they are women or more accurately old hags transforming into the wolves with the, under the influence of the devil. So... An influential judge, uh, Nicola Romy, wrote in 1595 that, and I'm quoting here, it is not unreasonable that this scum of humanity should be drawn chiefly from the feminine sex, which basically regurgitates entrenched ecclesiastical thinking, and there was short, certainly no shortage of women who were burnt at the stake for werewolfism. So in 1623 alone, 13 women were tried as werewolves in Estonia, and among them was Anne from Miramoisa, which is a small town on the outskirts of Tallinn, and that's the city that you see in the background there. And um, Anne confessed to having been a werewolf for four years and was also blamed for the death of a horse and some small animals, but she always denied those charges. So in here, um, there's a... Estonian horse and a European mink which are native to Estonia and the cornflower is the, the national flower of Estonia as well. And Anne is holding mandrake which was one of the common ingredients in werewolf potions at the time. Okay. So granted the most famous werewolves were male as they are today and the most famous of all being a guy known as Stuber Peter or Peter Stubb or Stump or Stumpf. There's a whole variation of names whose cannibalistic serial killings and subsequent capture and execution in the town of Bedburg in 1589 were immortalised in widely circulated woodblock pamphlets and broadsheets, which may account for why male werewolves sort of get the the key celebrity thing. And it also helped to establish some of the lycanthropic motives of the day. So you can see it was so popular that it was reproduced in a virtually identical broadsheet later the same year. And here again in a third pamphlet that made its way across the channel to England... So one of the popular motives of the day was the chopped-off paw here, uh, which you can see in both the German versions of the broadsheet. Now, this is an example of what's known as a sympathetic wound. So this is an injury on a wolf that is also evident on the person and which can be used to identify them as a werewolf. Okay, um, so this motive disappears from the English version and instead we see Stube wearing an enchanted girdle which was another popular method of transformation. Yeah. Now, the motive of the chopped paw 
actually appeared before the Stuber's story in a story about a female werewolf that was circulating the year before the trial and the German broadsheets. And the story was circulated by Henri Boguet, who was a chief witch hunter at the time and a respected judge. And he circulated this as a true story, although no records have um, actually been found and plenty of people have gone looking. So the story goes something like this. In the region of Averne, France, in 1588, a hunter comes to blows with a wolf and chops off its forepaw, dropping the trophy into his hunting sack. On his way home, he passes a nobleman who asks for a share of the spoils. The hunter offers up the wolf paw, but when he opens his sack, he's horrified to discover that the, the paw has transformed into a woman's hand. Worse still, the nobleman recognises the ring on the hand as belonging to his wife. He immediately storms home and confronts his wife, who's nursing a bleeding stump under her apron, and he promptly dispatches her to the authorities to be burnt at the stake. <laughs> so, lovely family story there. So here, um, you can see the chopped-off paw motive. I feminised the girdle. Uh, the crest up in the top right-hand corner is the crest for the Averne region, and the playing card motifs uh, refer to the Averne deck, which is an early playing card design from the area. And the plants are... Uh, she's holding mandrake again, and there's also hemlock and henbane, which were, again, popular potions in... Uh, oh, popular ingredients in werewolf potions, rather. So just in case you thought... Oh, wrong way. No, come back. Just in case you thought that witch hunts were a medieval phenomenon <laughs> or a thing of the past, you only need to look at the more recent trial of Lindy Chamberlain to see the disturbing persistence of the werewolf-witch-heretic stereotype in contemporary society. So the media demonisation of the bereaved mother shares a number of striking parallels with werewolf trials from the early modern period, including allusions to child sacrifice. And, of course, Lindy's uh, fringe religious allegiance to the Seventh-day Adventists automatically sets her up as a heretic in the popular imagination. So there's the charts that were produced by the Seventh-day Adventists. At the time of the trial, uh, Lindy received a cryptic letter from a <laughs> sympathiser who said he believed that a dingo stole Azaria, albeit, and I'm quoting here, a two-legged dingo like you. The prosecution argued that Azaria's clothing was too neatly cut and removed to have been done by canine teeth, which is uncannily similar to the argument that Bogay used in a 16th century trial um, of three accused female werewolves. So Bogay argues, and I'm quoting him here, the clothes of the children which they have killed and eaten have been found quite whole and without a single tear, so that there was every appearance of the children having been undressed by human hands. But perhaps the most poignant parallel uh, is with the media condemnation of Lindy's unwomanly emotional response to the loss of her child. And in the early modern era, um, it was believed that witches were unable to cry when they were hurt, especially when they were in front of a judge. Okay. So, moving on from witchcraft <laughs> to another figure which is regularly being conflated with the female werewolf, it's the hairy woman. <laughs> So way back in 1654, a fellow by the name of John Bulwer declared that woman is by nature smooth and delicate, and if she have many hairs, she is a monster. 
and not much appears to have changed. Four centuries and three waves of feminism later. There you go. So you just need to look at the glut of depilatory products on the market, uh, never mind the Brazilian waxing salons are out there, demonstrating that female body hair is still, you know, disturbing to social sensibilities and conventions. And have you ever noticed how many of these hair removal products claim to last up to four weeks? Let me think about it. (laughs) But hairiness did not always spell condemnation for the woman. Hairy saints such as Mary Magdalene, for example, were viewed as symbolising a new Eve, a return to Eden before the fall. And it's been argued that the hairy Magdalene's voluntary embrace of life like an animal in the wild is the very thing which, and I'm quoting here, elevates her out of her true bestiality, sort of implying that women are naturally more bestial than beasts. Um, So unlike the female werewolf's fur that has consistently pointed to transgressive and aggressive sexuality, the Madalena's bodysuit of um, curls protects her modesty after she is uh, stripped naked and banished to the wilderness. So it inverts the usual association of fur with a fall from grace. So it's this model of the hairy Magdalene that I've borrowed for my portrait of St Genevieve, who's the patron saint of Paris, but here she's watching over Kiki Smith, who's made a number of prints and drawings of the human saint in the company of wolves, but always as two separate species. Um, So this goes further and shows the saint as a wolf. So engrafting the wolf snout and the ears onto the classic iconography of the hairy female saint, I'm also hoping to offer an alternative morality for the female werewolf, which is not necessarily a heretic devil worshipper. So Kiki herself describes Genevieve's intimacy with the wolf as akin to that of witches and their familiars or consorts. And she returns to this motive of the woman emerging from the belly of the the wolf, a scene that she isolates from the Red Riding Hood story, to become an emblem of uh, rebirth, renewal and resurrection. So making a generic portrait like Rapture, Kiki implies that uh, the wolf is, is like a mother to all women, and here she is, she's, uh, she's being martyred in childbirth in order to pass on her cultural DNA to her human daughters. So the figure that comes most close to the werewolf in Kiki's work is uh, that of the hairy-faced girl, and particularly this work, Daughter, which is, uh, is the imagined offspring between Red Riding Hood and the wolf. So it's one of the few works in Kiki's repertoire that combines the physical attributes of both species in there. Uh, And it was made in response to seeing a portrait of a hairy girl in a French book, and she was just struck by the the sweetness of the the girl's expression. Oh, come back. She's gone. Oh. Oh, well, we've jumped one. We'll go back to... There she is. Okay. So I don't know which image she saw, but it could have been this one here. Um, which is uh, one of the Gonsalva sisters. It's Antonietta, who, along with her sisters, Madalena and Francesca, feature in a series of portraits in courtly attire, and suggesting that they uh, came to enjoy a measure of privilege and regard. So they were uh, seen as marvels and uh, lived amongst the courts in Europe during the 16th century. 
which is the same time that all of the werewolf persecutions were taking place. So the, the artists obviously uh, viewed them as more closely aligned to the wild woman and the hairy female saint rather than the, the werewolf. Okay, so here you've got the formal, courtly, full-length portrait of Madalena, and it also conforms to the format that's usually reserved for members of the nobility. However, it's, um, it's at odds with the cave setting and, uh, the, and her hirsute condition. So Madalena's composure in the portrait sort of implies that the cave is a natural attribute for her characterisation. And so she's just polarised, sort of belonging simultaneously both to court culture and to primitive nature. So in an age of miracles and discovery, the novel and the exotic were not viewed so much as, as freaks as demonstrations of God's divine wit and inventiveness. It's like, oh, how clever he is. He can produce all of these variations of the human form. And as such, a hairy uh, family at court could be justified as a show of piety or indeed erudition. And a number of highly respected scholars were keen to examine and document the family. So I'm currently working on a portrait of Madalena, which um, has this image, this image here, as its starting point. And this is my working drawing, so it's very early days yet, which I created in Photoshop. And that's one of the ways that I usually produce my working drawing. So drawing from a whole range of sources, putting them together. Um, so you can see I've manipulated the hair to look like ears. Uh, we might recognise a plant in the background as the humble tomato. Back, back in the early modern era, it was known as, and I've got to read this out, Lycopersicum lycopersicum, or wolf peach. And it had newly arrived in Europe, courtesy of the conquistadors, and it was initially considered toxic and inedible and attributed with aphrodisiac and hallucinogenic properties. So supposedly making it very popular with witches and werewolves. <coughs> so, and even now its Latin name, which is Solanum Lycopersicum, retains that reference to the wolves in Lyco. So the, the flowers in the hair are a related plant, the Lobera, which is the Solanum Lycocarpum, which is also known as the wolf apple. And the Canary is a reference to the Canary Islands, which is where Madalena's father was found and captured before he was taken off to uh, the courts in France. And the interesting thing about the Canary Islands is that that was a mistake. They should have been called the Dog Islands. Someone mixed up a ver variation of uh, canine with Canary, and the name stuck. So it's got nothing to do with Canaries. Okay. Now, one of the popular uh, explanations for hirsute of individuals during the Renaissance was that they were a product of a sexual encounter between woman and animal, although hardly ever between man and animal, interestingly enough. And as such, they threatened to disrupt boundaries and more particularly hierarchies between the two. Now, once you get to the 19th century and uh, Darwin's The Descent of Man, you've got a new paranoia developing which uh, surrounding the regression of human genes, so a return to a less evolved primitive state. So where the Gonzalo sisters were celebrated as marvels and worthy of royal patronage, uh, in the Victorian era, hirsute individuals are now more likely to end up in a freak show as examples of quantifiably deviant others and evolutionary throwbacks. So Julio Pastrana, 
this woman here, was so popular that uh, after she... After her premature death in 1860, her manager husband, Theodore Lent, had her embalmed and continued to exhibit her profitably for a further 20 years. And in fact, Pastrana's career continued for over a century and she was toured around the States in 1972. Okay. Now... It's remarkable we see very similar anxieties about genetic regression in current scientific debates uh, surrounding Mexico's uh, Luisa Lilia de Lira Aceves. So five generations of uh, Lilia's family have been born with congenital generalised hypertrichosis. So they've all been hairy. And a condition that's popularly known as uh, werewolf syndrome. And, and which has been proposed as the medical foundation for belief in lycanthropy. So the uh, family's credentials as the world's hairiest family have attracted Fox's television, Fox Television's Guinness Book of World Records, Ripley's Believe It or Not, amongst other kind of sensationalist documentary makers, and have earned uh, Lilia and her uh, family careers as uh, wolf girls and wolf children in the circus. Um, so this is the idea that uh, her... Oh, sorry. And some biologists have argued that her condition and this condition is a genetic atavism, which means that it's a residue of an earlier evolutionary stage that, you know, like extra nipples or being born with a tail, it's no longer expressed in the general population, but it remains dormant in our genetic makeup, which, of course, makes the uh, creationists very... Very anxious. There was one who said evolution, like werewolves, is a myth and rejects genetic atavism. So um, this is my portrait of Lilia. Uh, and the real Lilia has uh, chosen not to undergo hair removal. Uh, so my portrait shows her sort of proudly embracing her family inheritance. So the flowers in her hair are, are lupins, um, again meaning wolf, and rue, which is a symbol of, of maidenhood, virginity, and it's also supposedly a werewolf repellent, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, so, and she's, you know, she's got her wolf jewellery on. So if we backtrack to the Victorian era, we see another hairy woman challenging social hierarchies, and that's the female werewolf. And this was the age of the gothic femme fatale and increasingly rapacious female werewolves, uh, such as Clements Houseman's Whitefell, who literally preyed on uh, innocent children and unsuspecting husbands and lovers. So. There was one werewolf scholar uh, who went so far as to say that women were more desirous of becoming werewolves than men. In fact, they were far more cruel and daring and much more to be dreaded than male werewolves. And, of course, there was another woman threatening to disrupt sexual hierarchies at the time, and that was the suffragette, which can hardly be a coincidence. Oh, come on. Uh, and it was about this time that we also see the female werewolf become much more closely aligned with the vampire than the witch, and the shift from an ignorant old hag to, a, to someone younger, aristocratic, and therefore financially independent, and damn sight better looking, and therefore with greater sexual agency. Although the infected bite still didn't make its way into werewolf law until the 1940s. Okay. So... Again, the bloody chamber, which has been mentioned again uh, before, 
takes us back to archaic versions of the story and this print is based on uh, the wedding ceremony. So this is the traditional initiation of a maiden into womanhood and this transitional status is something that recurs in werewolf uh, lore. So to have seen the wolf is French slang for loss of virginity. So the Angela Carter story, it's, it's sort of set the template for Red Riding Hood interpretations since. And it's also um, linking it to the lunar cycle and the onset of menstruation um, and, uh, and blurring the line between the two, the, the, seeing the young girl increasingly embrace her inner wolf. So I just do this very quickly. You can see the same thing happening here that uh, Anna Parkman starts off as Red Riding Hood, ends up as the wolf. Oh, oh, maybe my time's up. Maybe I need to stop there. (laughs) Okay, thank you. I'm going back to the... Um, fairy tale itself, which I'll be mainly talking about in my short presentation, and the idea of being devoured, and trying to present at least one possible theory as to to what this means. Myths and fairy tales from around the world abound with stories about being devoured, eaten up and taken into the belly of the other, the monster. In the biblical story, Jonah was swallowed whole and taken into the belly of the whale. The beautiful maiden, Hesione from Greek myth, was chained to rocks at sea as a sacrificial offering to the sea monster with its giant mouth. Joseph Campbell refers to a Zulu story in which a mother and her two children are swallowed whole by an elephant. And inside the elephant, they saw forests, people and entire villages. Fairy tales focus a great deal on the threat of being eaten up and devoured, of course. Hansel and Gretel are captured by a wicked witch who plans to fatten them up and then eat them. The wolf in the tale of the three little pigs managed to gobble up the little pig who built a house of straw and to gobble up his brother who built a house of sticks and only the brother who built his house with bricks was saved. In the tale of Br'er Rabbit, the fox plans to eat the rabbit if he could just catch him. And in Jack and the Beanstalk, we have a particularly good example. When Jack climbs the magic beanstalk, he finds himself in the giant's castle where the giant is counting his money, singing, Fee-fi-fo-fum, I like children in my tum. (laughs) Pinocchio found himself in the stomach of a whale, which he tickled with a feather, and the whale sneezed, and Pinocchio and his friend Geppetto were then sent flying out safely onto the beach. And, of course, in the tale of Little Red Riding Hood, The wolf eats up the grandmother and Little Red Riding Hood, both of whom are later rescued. Joseph Campbell argues that these tales represent a rite of passage in which the hero-heroine must travel across a magical threshold that is into the belly of the monster, appear to have died and then be reborn. The character must first travel into the unknown, in other words, into the depths or the abyss, um, and this journey is essential to metamorphosis and rebirth, and he cites Riding Hood as an example of this kind of archetypal story. Eric Fromm interprets the Grimm's story of Little Red Riding Hood, or as, as the Grimm's brothers called, called the tale, Little Red Cap, from a Freudian perspective as about the dangers of sex. 
Bruno Bettelheim argues the tale is about the girl's rebirth as well as the story about the dangers of sex. And he says, Little Red Riding Hood loses her childish innocence as she encounters the dangers re- residing in herself and the world and exchanged it for wisdom that only the twice-born can possess. And I expect that this whole concept of the twice-born is absolutely essential to the appreciation and understanding of fairy of fairy stories, that that the reader, in journeying with, with the heroine or hero of the story, is in a sense also twice-born or comes at the, other, at the end of the story to some kind of new, conscious or otherwise, and possibly not always conscious, understanding of problems that might be besetting them. So I think the idea of twice-born is really important. He says when she's cut out of the wolf's belly, she's reborn on a higher plane of existence, relating positively to both her parents. No longer a child, she returns to life a young maiden. Campbell, Fromm and Bettelheim all look to the fairy tale for a deeper meaning that relates to Little Red Riding Hood's socialisation into a young woman who knows her proper place in society. And of course, as we see now with a lot of um, films, particularly dealing with, with female monsters, young female monsters in films such as Ginger Snaps, the first, I think, major films that Hollywood produced around the female werewolf. The first was Ginger Snaps. It was so popular it was remade, or there was a sequel made called Ginger Snaps Back, and a third one made as well. So we're not so keen these days with the idea of the young girl settling into her proper place at all because, because the classical proper place is a place usually of passivity um, and, and lack of potency for the girl. While children might take this moral away with them, um, the, the one that Bettelheim and the others are talking about, what about the sort of darker side of the tale? What is the appeal, in fact, of being devoured by a wolf, dressed up in Granny's bedclothes and bonnet? And what's the appeal of getting into bed with the wolf in the first place? And what is the appeal of being eaten up? If we look at the um, two versions of the tales, we, we notice that in the first, the Perot version, in the bedroom scene, and the bedroom scene, I suppose, is the, the primal scene of the Little Red Riding Hood story, when they're going through their questions, she says, Grandmother, what big ears you have, all the better to hear you with my child. Grandmother, what big eyes you have, all the better to see you with my child, and grandmother, what big teeth you've got, all the better to eat you up. And saying these words, this wicked wolf fell upon Little Red Riding Hood and ate her all up. And that's pretty much the end of the original Perot version of the story, except there was a little moral attached to it about attractive, well-bred young ladies who should never stray off the path. So this original version um, was rewritten later by the Grimm's brothers, as we know, who injected it with far more, with a much darker side, and hence its enduring popularity. So that when grandmother, when she says to grandmother, um, but what a terrible big mouth you have, and the wolf says, all the better to eat you with, the story then continues, and the Grimm's brothers add quite a few paragraphs to it. And scarcely had the wolf said this, than with one bound he was out of bed and swallowed up Red Riding Hood. When the wolf had appeased his appetite, he lay down again in the bed, fell asleep and began to snore very loud. The huntsman was just passing the house and thought to himself, 
how the old woman is snoring. I must see if she wants anything. So he went into the room, and when he came to the bed, he saw that the wolf was lying on it. Do I find you here, you old sinner, said he. I've long sought you. But just as he was going to fire at him, it occurred to him that the wolf might have devoured the grandmother, and that she might be still saved. So he did not fire, but took a pair of scissors and began to cut open the stomach of the sleeping wolf. When he'd made two snips, he saw that little red riding hood shining, and then he made two snips more, and the little girl sprang out, crying, Ah, how frightened I have been, how dark it was inside the wolf. After that, the aged grandmother came out alive also, but scarcely able to breathe. Red Riding Hood, however, quickly fetched great stones with which they filled the wolf's belly. And when he awoke, he wanted to run away, but the stones were so heavy, he collapsed at once and fell dead. So that's quite an elaboration from the original. And the curious device of of planting stones in the wolf's belly also um, is a very unusual aspect that's developed in the Grimm's. <coughs> so if you keep those two in mind for the minute, and I'll come back to the bedroom scene shortly. Post-Freud, of course, it now seems very clear, if it didn't at the time, the tale is really about sexual desire. And I've always been taken by Juna Barnes's explanation for the appeal of Little Red Riding Hood. She writes, Children know something they can't tell. They like Red Riding Hood and the wolf in bed. Um, And I think that's a very interesting comment, observation. Here I've just collected a few images of Red Riding Hood with the wolf. And I think they all make it... um, Well, they're all very interesting, so I'll quickly go through them. Here, um, this is a Walter Crane image. And we can see the wolf literally dressed in sheep's clothing. Oh, I've gone to the next one already. Maybe I can go back to that. There we go. Um, she's not the least bit frightened at all. She, he's kind of chatting to her, really. He's dressed a bit like a dandy in, in his sheep's coat um, with focus on his, his red tongue, which sort of rhymes with her, her red outfit, maybe suggesting any, at the visual level anyway of the merging of the two. I find this one much more ominous. Uh, um, Gustav Doré's famous illustrations, this is one of his from the, uh, the 19th century. We can't see the wolf's face very well here, just the hindquarters, but there's a kind of sort of intimacy in the way they're brushing up against each other, I think. And little red riding hood and the wolf seem to be there looking at each other eye to eye, sharing some kind of, of secret, perhaps, um, the darkness behind in the forest suggests maybe a darkness of the psyche as well. This is the, this next one I thought thinks the most unusual. <laughs> um, I think it's by um, Gabriel Ferrier, as far as I can see. But they really are like a couple um, strolling through the woods, maybe on a Sunday. She's dressed up in her best, and. The wolf's rubbing up against her. The caption says, Red Riding Hood smiles down at the wolf and the wolf shows her his teeth. But clearly, there's no suggestion of of menace. There's no suggestion that she's frightened. They really do look like a couple out strolling. Not someone taking their their dog for a walk, but a couple. 
And this suggests that in the Victorian period, people were very much aware of the sexual, um, not even undertones really, overtones of the Little Red Riding Hood story. The next one is uh, Walter Crane again. <laughs> the wolf dressed up as Granny, looking almost sheepish really, I think. Uh, as Little Red Riding Hood takes off her red cloak. And the very famous one, Right. Oh, well, I've jumped too, but that's all right. We'll leave that there. This is Dore again. Oh, how come that's happening? Uh, there we go. I'll put that down so I can't. Bettelheim writes of this one, the wolf is depicted as rather placid, but the girl appears to be beset by powerful ambivalent feelings as she looks at the wolf resting beside her. She makes no move to leave. The combination of feelings her face and body suggests can best be described as fascination. It's the same fascination which sex and everything surrounding it exercises over the child's mind. What is it then that um, children can't tell? There's no doubt that Little Red Riding Hood has attracted the wolf. She, she shows no fear when she encounters him in the forest. She even gives clear directions to Granny's house, as various writers have pointed out. And she spends enough time in the forest, just enough um, where she's been forbidden to go, of course, to allow the wolf time to arrive at the house before she does. She's somehow a kind of innocent accomplice in the wolf's plan to devour her. If we interpret this as a metaphor for sex... It seems clear then that the wolf offers to break the taboo on sex faced by all children who must or are supposed to wait until they've grown up. The wolf then becomes a symbol for a wolfish male who lives on the dark side. Bettelheim interprets her red cap as a symbol of her budding sexuality, reinforcing this, this interpretation. He says, why doesn't the wolf devour little red cap as soon as she meets her? The wolf's behaviour begins to make sense in the brother Grimm's version if we assume that to get to Little Red Cap, the wolf first has to do away with the grandmother. As long as the grandmother is around, Little Red Cap will not become his. And he writes grandmother with the grand in brackets, suggesting grandmother is also the mother. But once the grandmother is out of the way, the road seems open for acting on one's desires, which have to remain repressed as long as mother was around. This story on all levels deals with the daughter's unconscious wish, in fact, to be seduced by the father. The father disguised as the bad wolf or the father who also lives on the dark side. She then, in the end, is rescued not by the bad father, the wolf, or the wolfish attractive father, but by the woodsman who represents the good father. So he argues for two father figures in the film and two in the film in the story, and two mother figures, the grandmother and the mother and, and the woodsman and the wolf, as a disguised story about the little girl's desires for the father. This, however, still doesn't explain why sex is presented as synonymous with being eaten. Amongst, of course, creatures in the animal world, particularly spiders and the black widow spider, as we know, the female does actually devour the male during copulation. But Little Red Riding Hood could hardly have known about the unusual habits of the Black Widow spider. Eric Fromm argues the story is, is in fact an anti-male story in which the sexual act is described as a cannibalistic act in which the male devours the female. The impression of the act of sex as a sadistic act 
comes, as Freud and others have argued, from the child perhaps um, seeing um, when it shouldn't be seeing the father and the mother in bed with the father on top of the mother who emits moans and cries um, and the whole primal scene appears to look quite violent to the to the innocent eyes of the young child who then concludes that this is an, a sadistic kind of act in which the mother is disappearing under the father, which may help explain maybe the idea of why the idea of being eaten up um, may be synonymous for sex. But it does run through many fairy tales and um, which are not necessarily about sexuality. Um, and I think one way of understanding this theme of, of being devoured that runs through so many fairy tales is through Freud's theory of the, the three primal fantasies, which I'll briefly discuss now. Because I think, or for me anyway, they offer quite a helpful way of understanding the appeal of fairy tales. Freud argued that at a young age, children are confronted by, by three questions um, – really important questions um, about the meaning of life. And he developed this theory um, to explain how children respond to these questions, misinterpret or come up with misleading answers sometimes to these questions and use these questions as a basis for fantasy. The first is, where did I come from? In other words, how was I born? Where did I come from? The second is, why am I different? And in that here he's drawing on the idea of the difference between male and female because at some point he says all children, little boys wonder, are they the same as little girls? Are they different from little girls? And little girls wonder the same too. Are they the same as little boys? Are they different? What is the difference? And of course this relates to the whole theory of castration anxiety which I'll discuss. And the third question um, is who do I desire? Who do I love? So these are the three questions which is, I think, also probably a question that haunt all of us into, you know, for, the, for all of our lives, not starting with us when we're children. Where did I come from? This fantasy refers to what Freud calls the primal scene, which can take the form of an imaginary scene of birth, which may bear very little relationship to the way babies are actually born. Um, but children ask themselves this question, they ask their, their, their parents this question, where did I come from? And... Sometimes before they receive any answer, they fantasise, they, they daydream, they create an imaginary answer. Adults, of course, don't help um, with, with in, res in responding to this question often. And over the, over the centuries, I suppose, and probably still some adults will say things such as they were bought by the stork, um, <coughs> they were found in a cabbage patch, they were left on the doorstep by gypsies, and so on. Classical myths, of course, offer a number of interesting primal scenes. One could interpret the myth of the founding of Rome um, in terms of a primal scene. A she-wolf suckles the infants Romulus and Remus, who would otherwise have died, thus saving their lives, and then Romulus goes on to found Rome. So the actual founding of civilization in this story takes place because of a primal bond be between human and wolf, a bond which I think we've lost, and a bond which I think fairy stories like Little Red Riding Hood are trying to re recreate, reinvent or breathe new life into, maybe. And, of course, all the recent um, literature 
teenage literature for girls since um, around uh, for the last decade or so there's been a whole sort of rebirth of interest in the she-wolf as well as in the cinema Uh, now we also of course have other stories Leda and the Swan um, copulate in order for Leda to produce Aphrodite and the bull and so on Children are born in strange ways in myths and legends from the head of Zeus, from the rib of Adam, Eve comes. and So the culture actually abounds with very strange interpretations to this question, where did I come from? Today, the horror film, which you could sort of look at as fairy tales for adults, asks or explores this question for adults as well. And if any of you saw Alien when it first came out, um, the answer to the question is given in a, a scene of incredible horror, which of course has been satirised <coughs> since, since, particularly by French and Saunders in a fantastic um, send-up of Alien, but the creature is implanted through the mouth, so this is the idea that, that somehow birth is something to do with, with eating, and it is born then by eating its way or gnawing its way through the stomach of the male astronaut. It's a very strange primal birth scene. Vampires um, clone themselves by biting small holes in the necks of their victims and so on. Now before I go back to Little Red Riding Hood and the idea of being eaten, I'll just briefly mention the other two questions just to set the the scene and to, to fill it in for you. Why am I different from him, from her? At a certain age, according to Freud, the little boy wonders why he is different from his sister's and vice versa, or maybe why daddy's different from mummy. He may imagine she is just the same as himself, but she has lost her penis, or or she hasn't yet grown one. She may ask the same question and think she is simply different, and then, or that her penis will grow later. For the boy, this question, however, may lead to anxieties about castration. Um, it's difficult to imagine it could lead to anxieties about castration for the girl in the sense that She's got nothing to lose. According to Freud, boys may believe that their father has the power to punish them with castration. I started late. (laughs) (laughs) And make them just like the mother or sister. If they are aware of their mother's menstruation, of course, they may think that the blood comes from a wound caused by the castrating father. Many fairy tales, nursery rhymes and so on explore anxieties about castration and I haven't got time to go through them all. Um, there's a fantastic little, uh, it's not a fairy tale, but Three Blind Mice, of course, if you, you would all have known that. Three Blind Mice, Three Blind Mice, see how they run, see how they run. They all run after the farmer's wife, who cut off their tails with a carving knife. Did you ever see such a sight in your life as Three Blind Mice? Blindness in, in a lot of psychoanalytic writings is also a metaphor for castration. There are many, there's the Grimm's fairy tale, The Maiden Without Hands, in which the father's forced to cut his daughter's hands to keep a pact he's unknowingly made with the devil. In Rapunzel, the wicked enchantress cuts off her beautiful long hair and then causes the prince to lose his sight. So again, it's loss, castration. The goose girl, particularly um, riveting story around images of cutting and castration. The mother cuts a lock of her own hair. The princess escapes from the city. The horse she rides or takes with her, which is really actually a fairy, has, has her head cut off, which is then hung on the city gates. Um, the Bluebeard story, of course, recounts a terrible scene of decapitation 
a terrible primal scene because the key scene there is the attic where Bluebeard keeps the headless bodies of all his past lives. The classic fairy tale story about castration is Cinderella. In the Grimm's version, the wicked stepsisters cut off their toes to fit their bloody feet into the slippers. And in addition, at the end, the pigeons pluck out their eyes. Fairy tales for adults around castration themes, of course, Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands is, is a really interesting example. The third scene, who do I love, who do I desire? This is the seduction scene. Um, and of course, many fairy tales deal with this. The child <coughs> who loves its mother or its father, according to the theory, often feels guilty because they do unconsciously want the other parent out of the way to disappear, something to happen to them. And fairy tales are filled with stories of taboo love and thwarted love. Um, in Rapunzel, the lovers are separated. In Cinderella, the little girl loves the prince but is not worthy. Um, and then you get the other group of tales where the, the little girl falls in love or is, is somehow has to be attracted to the creature first, the frog prince, Beauty and the Beast, and, of course, Red Riding Hood, which we've been talking about. Freud and others argue that these fairy tales um, play a really important role in children's lives because it enables them to ruminate, to, to think around these questions. Where did I come from? Why am I different? Who do I desire? Um, and create all sorts of interesting answers which don't have to, and perhaps it's maybe good they don't bear relationship exactly to reality because... The imagination is free to roam, to create as it wishes, and in so doing it often helps children solve problems they're dealing with um, and explore them in unusual but very productive ways. The interesting thing about those three questions is they're all about origins. The first one is the origin of the actual individual. Where did I come from? The second, the origin of sexual difference. Why am I different? And the third, the origin of love and sexual attraction. So they're pretty big questions. Um, so I'll just skip now to the fantasy of being eaten, the, the main one we're looking at today, not the other two. Eaten or devoured. Um, it's not surprising if we as, as children mistakenly believe we came from mother's tummy. When children ask where they come from, adults often reply, from mummy's tummy not from mummy's vagina. When children see their mother's tummy becoming larger, they're told mummy's having another baby, and they think the baby's in her tummy. They may well wonder how the baby got to be in mummy's tummy. Freud, of course, argued children go through an oral phase in which they derive great enjoyment in suckling at the mother's breast, putting everything to their lips, their mouths, suckling their thumbs, eating and biting. We live in an oral culture in which orality plays a key role in sex and eroticism. Um, a favourite saying of many adults, particularly with little children, sometimes with pets and animals, is, you know, you're so cute I could eat you all up. So what is a child to make of that? I love you so much, I just want to eat you all up. So the idea of being devoured then also becomes kind of erotic, um, taken into the, the other, eaten up, absorbed, um, and so forth. The bedroom scene of Little Red Riding Hood, I think, explores a strange mix of answers to all of these three questions. Where did I come from? How did I get there? Um, why am I different? Who do I love? And I think that's why it is so enduring and so popular, because it actually looks at the three questions of origins. And the possibilities are all very strange. 
Mummy Little Red Riding Hood had sex with an animal, a wolf. The sex consists of the wolf gobbling her all up. The baby lives in the tummy and is born when the tummy is opened up. Little Red Riding Hood discovers for herself this is possible. Both she and her grandmother are eaten up whole and live in the wolf's tummy. They're later taken out whole. When they're removed by the father, who's a kind of midwife, he puts stones in the wolf's tummy, who then dies. The tummy is definitely a roomy, large place. Why am I different? The wolf in the forest seems to be definitely male, but the pregnancy scene, in a sense, makes the wolf female, a she-wolf. After all, when Little Red Riding Hood first sees the wolf in bed, it's dressed up as a woman. In a sense, it's a bisexual animal. It's the it's woman as um, hermaphrodite, woman with, with both um, male and female attributes, because when you think about the wolf dressed up as <coughs> granny in bed, as we can see here, what we have is a creature with a furry tail or phallus and a large mouth, a large toothed mouth known in myth as the vagina dentata, which which we've been talking about, all the better to eat you up. The wolf is able to hold babies in its tummy. The father is midwife, and so it's an interesting scene where the father's actually giving birth to Little Red Riding Hood or bringing her out, and Mummy's, in a sense, grandmother is now dead. So that's a very um, strange fantasy way of removing the mother. Cuts open its tummy and gives birth to Little Red Riding Hood and Granny. Who do I desire? The other possibility is that um, the conventional story is that Little Red Riding Hood desires the father, the dark father of the woods, um, the, the dark wolf. The other possibility is, of course, that Little Red Riding Hood desires the wolf, both, both as the wolf as male and the wolf as female. The story suggests a strong bond with nature between the little girl and her animal friend. Woman has always been represented as closer to nature than man, particularly because of her reproductive functions, pregnancy, birth, afterbirth, suckling, etc. And this is an interesting argument that eco-feminists put forward. There is this tradition of bestial love in fairy tales, as I've mentioned, the Frog Prince, Beauty and the Beast, um, in recent films for adults, Wolf with Jack Nicholson, um, and Michelle Pfeiffer, and of course The Company of Wolves. So I think we could change um, um, Juna Barnes's saying from God, children know something they can't tell, they like Red Riding Hood and the wolf in bed to God, children know something, or God, we know something, we can't tell, we all like Red Riding Hood and the wolf in bed. Thank you. Do we have any questions for Yasmina or Barb? Or maybe Kim? Um, I've been watching the ABC comedy Laid. Have you seen that? I've dipped into it. With her red coat, and last night we saw a wonderful picture of a vagina dentata, so I just uh, <laughs> thought that, you know, that might be something to throw into the, uh, to the pot yeah, there. Yeah, throw into mm. the mix. Um, yeah, I guess um, I find it quite, or I find the vagina dentata myth quite interesting because um, it seems to correlate with the, uh, in Jasmine's um, work, she calls it girly werewolves. Um, so I guess it's one of those sort of girl monsters that seems to um, sort of be in control or have a sense of independence and freedom um, that's obviously quite sexualised um, given the location of her source of power. Um, 
So uh, I guess particularly where that sort of works together with um, notions of werewolves, um, that's probably particularly um, the area that I'm looking in. Although I have heard that late is very well written. Isn't it, <laughs> isn't it Marie Hardy or something like that? Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> You mentioned briefly the Sharon Marcus's uh, theories of like rape performance and that sort of thing. I was wondering, uh, how do you see sort of? Uh, sorry, hi. Hi. Um, <laughs> how do you see uh, concepts of rape performance and the idea of, uh, I suppose, the feminine body with um, hidden delightful teeth, um, as sort of playing into, I guess, sort of an almost an absurdist culture, I think, maybe, with um, regard to sort of masculine approaches to the feminine body and its activity and sexuality? Yeah. I guess um, what sort of first really attracted me to Little Red Riding Hood was not so much the Grimm's and Perot um, sort of versions, but I guess reading Angela Carter's um, sort of werewolf triptych in... Um, the Bloody Chamber, and then comparing that with um, sort of oral tales like the, the one that I s talked about today, which was the story of the grandmother. Um, and I think um, what I sort of found most interesting is that this sort of, I guess you could call it kind of a, a rape script that um, sort of evolves in the, in the official fairy tale text. Um, seems to be exploded in in either the sort of neo versions or the oral tales. Um, so I think what sort of attracted me to Sharon Marcus's work, which is probably a lot more in the arena of um, talking about legal processes and how they impact on um, femininity um, and violence against women, um, is that. It, it sort of allows you to look at um, various different options um, for women to achieve a, 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 or, or kind of explode the powerlessness um, myth, um, even to the extent um, where we're talking about a physical violence against women rather than um, talking about it in narrative forms. So I guess that's sort of where I'm coming from. I'm not sure if that's answering your question very well. Hello. Abby. <laughs> um, I was really interested in what you were saying about um, how there was a time when women were actually seen as being morally um, weaker and more prone to sin. And um, it reminds me of some of my own uh, historical research where women were also seen as having a more... Um, strong sexual desire than men. And do you think that's interesting how that's then gone through time, mainly getting into the Victorian era of women then being morally very good, very angelic, and also quite frigid in terms of sexuality? Um, do you think that's interesting? Or? Well, it's, it's certainly interesting. Um, and why it's happened is... is um interesting as well too it's, it's not so much the the thing itself but um but I think that was I think what 
That was more the ideal of the woman. There were always, there've always been more than one type of woman out there, and they've always been played off against each other. So, uh, while you had that ideal mother, mother figure, the, the demure wife, I think it's interesting that that came out at the same time that there was the suffragette movement, when women were actually gaining some kind of <coughs> political power and social power, and domestic power. Prior to then, it wasn't such an issue. So I, I suspect that why that changed is much more interesting than the fact that it did change. Hi, I'd just like to ask a question of Kimberly and Barbara, and that's the idea of entrapment in these fairy tales. And I'm thinking of Daphne du Maurier's story, Don't Look Now, and the Nicholas Rogue uh, film of it, where Red Riding Hood, or a character that one presumes is Red Riding Hood, the father's deluded and sees his child. And it's a very uh, frightening interpretation of, of, of the myth or the story of Red Riding Hood. And I think there is an element of entrapment right through Red Riding Hood, and I'd just like some your comments on that. Thanks. Have you seen the movie, Bob? Yes, I have. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of... Uh, you're right, of course, the little girl who drowns at the very beginning of the film um, wears a little red red raincoat all the way through and the family go to Venice to re recover. The father's also working there and he imagines he sees her all the time in, in the dark streets around the canals. So, yes, it could well be a Red Riding Hood figure. Um who's been actually taken away. I, the idea of entrapment's very interesting because I think that entrapment always suggests that the, 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 the so-called victim and, and the one pursuing the victim, the two, you know, the, there's a sense in which the, the person being entrapped wants to be entrapped, I think. Um, and, I mean, this runs right through, for example, Mills and Boone literature, the, Mills and Boone, where the hero is almost always an animal. You know, he's, he's a wolf, he's an eagle, he's always described in animalistic terms. And there's always a catch whereby the heroine is forced to either work for him in some way or be, usually work for him or be with him. She, she can't get away. She's entrapped by a plot device, if you like. Um, but that then enables her to explore all her sexual desires with him and so entrapment there... Um, Works, yes. You, it's a sort of um, if if the heroine can't help herself, um, then it, she she also isn't morally responsible, and that's the other the other thing that comes out of the Mills and Boone a lot. She can't help the fact she's trapped in a situation with him. Therefore, what it, what happens to her makes her not morally responsible. And these these novels abound with phrases such as her. Her body, um, her traitorous body betrayed her uh, and gave in to her you know, desires for him, whereas her mind was rebelling. Uh, but the body wins out. So they're very interesting entrapment scenarios, actually, in, in this sort of... Yeah. It's kind of Heathcliffian, Byronic um, situation in a way. You know, he's so magnetic that, that she's just entrapped and can't help herself. The body betrays her. Yeah, the body yeah, betrays. I'm sorry, I haven't seen that particular film, but um, I guess from it's creepy. The <laughs> it's a creepy film. I guess Very from creepy. just yes. the tropes of Little Red Riding Hood, um, 
I, I always thought it was a bit unfair that Mother said, don't stray from the path, but not that um, if you do, a wolf will catch you and you'll be raped and killed. <laughs> so she's not really given all of the evidence, <laughs> but yet she's still um, interpolated into the whole... Um, it, it's sort of like she's to blame, like she's put herself in harm's way. Um, perhaps the mother should have taken the cakes to Granny herself. Um, <laughs> so there is that sort of sense of entrapment and, um, yeah, I suppose that maybe those, some of those themes, although I've, I've not seen the film, might um, flow through. Um, I was just going to put a comment out there. Um, <clears throat> I'm fascinated probably not so much from a Freudian perspective but from a Jungian perspective um, with all these stories as cultural compensations for, you know, the, the, the predominating sort of psychological types at the time, sort of the idea that um, we've got <coughs> portraits of femininity uh, coming into contact what, as, with what I essentially see as, as a masculine trait, not, not necessarily to do with men but to do with inner masculinity Red Riding Hood coming into contact with the wolf seems as much about a woman contacting her inner masculine in a way, and entrapment as not so much being um, a trap, but an inevitable sort of um, stumbling block of, of the, the character into her own sort of psyche. Um, like I think of uh, modern sort of retellings again, I, th I think of a book called um, Women Who Run With Wolves, which is all about, I'm not sure a few people might have heard of it, but all about women um, coming into their own power. Um, with, with the second talk, I was looking at all the pictures of women uh, riding the wolves and I was struck by that, that symbolic representation, I suppose, as well, of women, women being with their own masculine power. And, of course, like you said, it's very interesting that uh, why at that time you've got all these persecutions, you know, at a time when femininity, femininity is quite obviously repressed and put down as a negative quality, women really embracing their power, they're, they're demonised as witches, as werewolves, as all these sorts of things. And um, uh, I guess I just wanted to throw that out there because I, I, th I find it fascinating how um, perhaps now in, in, in how, how the stories are being retold or getting reinvented... Um, as feminine still coming in. It seems to me still about femininity reclaiming some kind of power, masculine power, having the teeth, having the jaws. Mm. I choose when I have sex. I choose when not to have sex. You know, it's my power. Mm. Anyway, that's a bit of a rant, but <laughs> <Yeah>. thank you. <laughs> well, yeah, Great I talks. Think, um, if you're in another seminar where they were talking about Jack and the Beanstalk, we'd be talking about different aspects. But obviously <laughs> this... Um, you know, t we're talking about kind of girl myths here, mm. um, which are, seem to be, I don't you guys can probably speak to this as well, they seem to be mostly about sex. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think that's interesting in the Jungian kind of aspects that you raised. Um, and I think that um, you can sort of look at the antagonists of um, the girl and the wolf as maybe um, the girl as the sort of conscious reconciling with the other um, and that sort of happens in various ways and I think <coughs> in maybe the oral myths and the more contemporary myths the idea of the other isn't specifically evil it's um, more it might be dangerous but it's sort of a necessary 
um, it's a, a necessary interaction to sort of bring the psyche into wholeness or, you know, along those sort of lines. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing too is, is we're looking at the way that women have been invented, reinvented throughout history, but we m- mustn't forget that this story is also based on the way that the wolf has been reinvented throughout history as well. Mm-hmm. And it has changed and it has become feminised, I would argue, in the last few decades, particularly since Women Who Run With The Wolves. And it's also... Uh, so you see a lot more women claiming the wolf as their particular animal. But I think it's interesting, and I, I'm, you know, I'm, that the, it's also the first time in history that the wolf is being presented as a victim too. So it is now endangered. It now needs protection and, and care um, because it's a threatened species. So, so I think that the two have to be looked at together at the evolution of both of them together. And, and that's the other thing that I found really interesting is that they've been, they've been on a parallel trajectory throughout history as well. Yeah, there's the, an interesting horror film on that called Wolfen. Mm. Uh, I think it's Canadian, where, which actually links the emergence of the, the werewolf um, in the film to, to the destruction and almost extinction of the actual wolf. And there's documentary footage in, in the middle of the film that shows um, shows us or, or hunters shooting wolves in their natural environment from from helicopters. I mean, the wolves just don't stand a chance, and it's mm. an incredibly moving sequence in the film. Um, which, mm. and as far as I know, I, I don't think there are any actual stories of wolves. Don't actually attack people. They, they, have. they have, have they? Yeah, oh, it's, it's, sorry, rare. it's rare. <laughs> it's rare and yes. it doesn't happen very often, right. but there have been okay. cases when they do. I think in the you know, 17th, 18th century in the mountain towns in Europe it was probably more of an issue, mm. um, wolves taking children and yeah. etc. There sort of times of, of famine and uh, like extreme mm-hmm. weather mm-hmm. conditions and things, but mm-hmm. it, it is very unusual. Mm-hmm. They don't usually attack people. No. Like that short doco the other night on telly about the um, the dingoes on Fraser mm. Island, which was, a, I found absolutely shocking that they are starving the dingoes consciously, the, the wildlife that authorities. Um, and I think that, I couldn't get the logic, I think they're starving them to try and force them back into their habitat to eat. Anyway, they're starving and, and this... Mm. Maybe the reason they're now attacking people, <laughs> going the wrong way about it. Yeah, it's understandable. One more question. This is a question for Barbara, please. Um, you mentioned planting stones. Planting stones. Um, the in stones the wolf. in the wolf's tummy. Yes, I was reminded of the story of the seven little kids, the goat kids. Who? Oh, yeah. th- there was also planting of stones in that story. Could you say some more about that, please? I don't know that story. Uh, yeah, yeah I've, I've read that one. Yeah. Um, that that's another um, Grimm's tale, which um, in some of my writing I surmise that they may have sort of cherry-picked some elements from other tales mm. um, when they're obviously making some changes to the Perot version. Um, I think that's, that's about a mother who um, leaves the house, uh, her seven children, kids, uh, Inside, I think the wolf somehow um, ingratiates mm. himself and gets in inside the house. She returns 
um, to find a fat sleeping wolf and that's the element with the scissors comes in, which is obviously a bit more aligned with the domestic arts of women during that period. Um, she then sews his stomach up with stones and he falls falls down dead.